The year is 1985, and the second Nightmare on Elm Street movie is released in theaters. Some say it's an inferior follow-up to the classic horror film, but does it truly deserve that reputation? I'm Travis Kirkland. And I'm Luana Saito. And this is Trash-tober, our horror celebration on Defend Your Trash Movie. Trash movies. If you got some films in your streaming queue, what will we defend? Trash movies. If they're kind of weird and they weren't that good, what will we defend? Trash movies. We ain't afraid no trash. Trash movies make us feel good. Welcome back to not only just a fine time on this show called Defend Your Trash Movie, the podcast that examines bad movies and misrepresented films to see if they're actually good, but it is the spookiest time of the season of our podcast year because Ooh. it is once again Trash Tober time, Luana. Trashtober, in which we will visit the worst of the worst, the scariest of the scariest, and the spookiest of the ooky in our search for the for the scariest trash of all. Well, and also, you know, this is the second time we're doing Trashtober, and look, if Trashtober is coming back, we can't simply just call it Trashtober again. This is the sequel, baby. We gotta. Give it a grandiose sequel name, like any good horror sequel. And that's Gotta why bigger and better. Exactly. And that's why we're calling this year's Trash Tober Trash Tober 2. Trash of the Titans. Titans. Yeah, yeah baby. All and, right. Yeah. And uh the reason we're calling it Trash of the Titans is because this year we'll be covering some of the biggest Titans in horror movie history, some of the big iconic monsters and slashers and uh i have to say uh going into the uh filmographies of some of these famous monsters i think it's going to be an exciting time this halloween season yeah i mean there's such a deep bench to pull from uh we we've got classic 80s slashers we've got um og universal icons uh mm-hmm. we, we've got uh we got them got- all rebooted scary guys we got uh, them all we got a big variety coming up for you folks the trash is deep and you know what i think a fun way to kick off the festivities of trashed over <laughs> is to do a spooky tradition or a spooky version of one of our traditional segments so let's go ahead and do ranking the villains now uh listeners ranking the villains is where we take a look back at some of the movies that we've covered in our podcast history and we uh scope out some of the villains we've covered and uh see where they rank and of course we rank them by the popular internet s tier ranking s at the top 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 of the list and f at the bottom bottom of the list and uh we'll see how we feel about some of our previous cinematic villains and i think 
to make it a special Trashtober time, I say let's look back at the villains from last season's Trashtober movies and uh, see how we put them in the S tier rankings. All right, uh, I'm uh, I'm uh, ready to go. Which which ones do you got for us, Travis? Well, let's go ahead and kick it off from Friday the Thirteenth, Part Five: A New Beginning. <laughs> we have Roy Burns, aka the Jason Voorhees impersonator. Uh, that character played by Dick Weenand. And uh, hmm, this, is, this is a controversial killer because obviously people love Jason Voorhees, but this is, as we discussed, this was the movie that promised Jason, teased Jason, and in fact, it was not Jason in the end. It was this random character who was impersonating Jason Voorhees. I'm going to go ahead and give this guy the S tier. <laughs> Why yes? <laughs> I mean, he's he's so like he's so pure in a sense because like <laughs> like what is a like when you are five movies deep in a slasher movie series, and you know slasher movies, eighties slasher movies are you know very much carnival barker products. You know they're not. Sure made for artistic reasons they're just they're just delivery systems of like here's, here's some boobs here's some kills in and out 80 minutes blah blah, blah. maybe you have some twists maybe you have some funny kills or some creative kills or whatever um and like well we just killed our guy last time what are we gonna do uh i don't know here's a new guy with, <laughs> uh, uh, and the 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 casually tossed off way is like oh yeah this random kid dies at the start um by accident or by you know misdemeanor uh-huh what, what do you call that mis misadventure i think it's uh, an accident yeah or kind of whatever you know yeah right and and it turns out that one of the paramedics randomly is his dad is his long who, last dad yeah. yeah who also is crazy enough i guess <laughs> to start you know, picking up the the mask of jason and start killing motherfuckers who were in very sort of uh uh let's say tenuously connected to the <laughs> death of his son <laughs> like everything is just such a big uh, whatever drug to to get a, a, a vaguely functioning narrative up on screen of like uh, uh you know uh, doesn't make sense i don't know but keep them kills and them boobies coming you know yeah. so thank you roy the paramedic you were a hard worker <laughs> you killed you killed like 20 guys you need you needed about 0.5 oh three seconds to decide <laughs> that you were gonna take up the mantle of jason and and you went for it baby maybe um, he, maybe he felt like as a paramedic he needed to like scale the balances you know because he as a paramedic he saved lives so maybe he yeah. felt like he needed to take lives in equal measure in some type of like karmic logic or something like that oh absolutely so, <laughs> so there, so there you go. S tier. Interesting. You gave it more. Uh, you gave it more thought than the writer of Friday the Thirteenth New Beginning did. Uh, you know what? I'm gonna take him down a few notches. I'm gonna put him in B tier. Okay. Because I don't remember if I talked about it on that episode, but I 
I do think a reveal of a Jason Voorhees impersonator could have worked, but had it been for a character more established than just, like you point out, just random character who shows up with tenuous connection to the main characters. Uh, if it had been like one, just one of the main cast, I think it worked a little better. That said, I still don't put him in the lower tiers because like, look, he may be an impersonator, but if you see the kills in part five, he does a damn good impersonation. <laughs> yeah, he, he's working hard. <laughs> yeah, because he could have just been like, oh, I'm just going to put on the mask and stab, stab, stab. But no, he he's like, he's decapitating and, and, drown, and drowning people in stew. And he's <laughs> tightening belts around people's eyeballs. And, you know, he, <laughs> he's, he's putting in the creativity there. Right, right, right. So he's the... no slouch. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I used to know these things better, but I think that at that point, it, he even has the highest kill of any of the pre preceding uh, movies. May, oh, may, I don't know that. Uh, but he, I mean, he pretty much does kill almost everybody uh, <laughs> yeah, in right? that house and some friends who, who just happen to be around. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, uh, Miguel Nunez uh, and his girlfriend. Oh, uh, yeah. Killing him, you know, because he's in the bathroom because of those them damn enchiladas. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, look, uh, Roy. You were random, but I gotta say, the kills were good. And if you go to see Friday the 13th, they're there for the kills. So I can't 100% hate you. That's why, for me, you're in B tier. Right, let's see. Uh, 10, 12, 13. Oh, 13. Uh, no, no, wait. Um, yes, yes, Roy absolutely has a higher kill count than... Uh, either Jason or Mrs. Voorhees in any of the preceding wow. movies. <laughs> wow, okay, wow. Well, uh, the highest kill count up to that point had been, of course, Jason in the final chapter with mm -hmm. um, 13 kills. Mm -hmm. And uh, Roy killed 17 people in... Wow, wow. Well, impersonation truly is the sincerest form of flattery. <laughs> All right, but uh, let's go ahead and move on to our next villain from another movie that we covered for Trashtober. So our next villain that we'll be ranking is Dr. Edward Pretorius from From Beyond, played by Ted Sorrell. He does, the thing is that he doesn't actually, for him being, I think, the quote-unquote main villain, he's not in the movie a whole lot. Mm -hmm, I would mm -hmm. say I, I I would I would not be surprised if his like screen time amounted to like 10 minutes, maybe. Um, Because he shows up. Obviously, he's in the prologue. He shows up when they first turn on the machine again. And then he's there at the end. Um, And I think he's fun and all his gooeyness is uh, fun. Uh, he's got some S&M stuff. So, you know. <laughs> He's a he's a freak. He's a freak, which is appropriate for a Stuart Gordon adaptation of an HP Lovecraft story. You gotta be a, you gotta be a good freak, right? 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 Uh, you know what? I, you know what? I'm gonna put him in B tier too. Uh, I think I think the main cast like Jeffrey Combs and Keith David and Barbara Crampton kind of pop off more. I would say even Crampton and combs probably do more memorable villainous things in from beyond but i, I still like ted sorrell's 
brief appearances in the movie. So he's in B tier for me. Yeah, I, I think indeed because like everyone gets their uh what 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 do they call again? The hypothalamus or the hypotenuse or something? Oh, the hip, uh, the the pineal gland. The pineal, <laughs> yeah. Um, because everyone gets that shit stimulated and become uh-huh. kind of villainous. So yeah. um, go crazy it, with their desires. Yeah, if it was just Pretorius who kind of like, uh, exerted an off-screen influence, mm-hmm. uh, I would. I'm gonna give him an A though. Okay. Okay. I think I think he's really good. I think he's really slimy. He mm-hmm. makes the most of his ten minutes, but uh, you're right. That's what kind of keeps him from an S because the 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 pineal gland stimulation happens to everyone. It's not just it's not Pretorius's influence per se that makes everyone go oh, nutty. It's it's that you know it's the dimension. It's the machine. So, right. Yeah. Okay, but but the uh, Tetsurel does a very good job. He's mm-hmm. he's very like slimy and sleazy. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like he's the he's sort of the 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 movie's kind of signpost of what ooh if you know if Coombs and Crampton go off the deep end they might become like him you know mm-hmm. and he um and he embodies that very well I feel yeah. so he's an I agree. okay I will say before we leave that this tier uh he has a very good robe I think I think he has a very good like flashy robe he wears <laughs> at the at the start of the movie um, like it's, so- it's like it's like shiny and silk <laughs> the definitely like a swingers robe he's got yeah, like right. an older man swinger that's into uh-huh. swinger culture robe which uh-huh. i guess is appropriate uh but okay let's go ahead and move on to our final villain and from last season's trashtober we're moving on to the 1999 remake of house on haunted hill and we'll be ranking the darkness the darkness being the giant supernatural ghost entity that is haunting the aforementioned house that is on the hill and is made up of the dead souls, the angry dead souls of the patients that had died in that house when it was at asylum so many years ago. Mm-hmm. Let's see here. I am going to put it in C tier. I was yeah okay you beat me to it see because like it does some cool effects yeah but like it's kind of the opposite of Pretorius really because like Pretorius I'm like ah he kind of uh it's not really his influence more Mm -hmm. so as the dimension but um and I guess the the entity is the dimension (laughs) Mm -hmm. but it's a bit too impersonal to uh kind of because it does do some nifty things Mm -hmm. um like the sort of uh seeing the the ghosts through the camera viewfinder and stuff that's That's neat yeah that's neat it cuts up bridget wilson into little mini bits and puts them in a meat closet yeah (laughs) but like and and it does kind of have a underused pretorius in in jeffrey coombs actually yeah yeah yeah. uh but but he doesn't really get to do much like he like the best stuff he gets to do is like uh in the viewfinder scene when he suddenly turns towards the camera it's like oh fuck they realize Uh that we're here Uh uh so uh, while effective um it's all a bit too impersonal yeah And, and uh, unlike it's kind of the opposite of uh 
of From Beyond, because in House on Haunted Hill, it's Jeffrey Rush who steals the show. Right. Who, who ultimately isn't even under the influence of the entity. He's just, you know, yeah. a rich, crazy guy. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I, I, I gotta agree. Um, I'll say one thing that also demotes it is, uh, so, you know, the whole reason that it gets those people to the house is that they are the descendants of the staff that worked at the <laughs> asylum. Uh, but at the end of the movie, the reason Tay Diggs survives is because he at one point goes like, hey, I, I'm not even related. I'm adopted. And it's like, wait, the darkness couldn't detect that Tay Diggs was adopted. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, come on, your, your plan is flawed. Despite the fact that I guess you have the power of uh, email in that movie, <laughs> uh, you couldn't detect that Tay Diggs' character was adopted and not blood related to a uh, staff to the staff of uh, the <laughs> asylum. So uh, some bad research there. If you can uh, re- if you can go through the internet emailing people, and then uh, you know you should have found that tidbit. You should have found that tidbit, <laughs> darkness. I also love that when, you know, the darkness does its dark invitations and we see the montage of everyone like, ooh, getting their emails mm-hmm. and showing up to the house, we hear uh, uh, Marilyn Manson's the version sweet of Sweet Dreams. dreams. <laughs> like, oh my God. Oh, Was man. that even scary in 1999? <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, M- Manson in retrospect, like, oh, you had to be the most uptight conservative Christian to find <laughs> Manson scary at all it's right. it's just so uh it's so uh now it's just hot topic um <laughs> you know not even hot topic even hot topics gone like mostly like disney stuff or whatever now but anyway <laughs> that's another that's another topic uh but uh, yeah so that was ranking the villains and uh yeah i think that's a good way to uh you know reflect back on last season's crop of horror movies that we discussed but we have a brand new crop to discuss and uh let's go ahead let's kick it off with a nightmare on elm street 2 freddy's revenge someone is coming back to elm street he is not friendly he is not patient and he is not a welcome visitor But he has something terribly special for the new kid on the block. It started to happen again. Dad! I'm in trouble. You've had some scary dreams, okay? Help! Daddy can't help you now. There's something inside of you. Fight him! You are not afraid of him. He doesn't even exist. Freddy Krueger is back on Elm Street. Watch out for him. He'll be in your neighborhood soon. A Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 2. You are all my children now. Freddy's Revenge. (laughs) A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, directed by Jack Shoulder, was released on November 1st, 1985. It stars Mark Patton, Kim Myers, Robert England, Robert Russler, and many others. 
Uh, you know, as per tradition, when we do these big franchises, uh, we talk about our history. And I'll say I love the Elm Street franchise. Uh, funny enough, I was familiar with the Elm Street movies as individual scenes before I had seen the movies. I remember when I was a kid, I would go to my friend's house and he had, I guess, like the... Uh, these VHSs that were compilations of horror movie scenes, like okay, the, right. the scariest and goriest scenes in uh-huh. horror movies, and so and there, and so we'd watch these compilations that would have stuff from like uh, Evil Dead and, and and Jason Voorhees and why, and there were of course Freddy Krueger scenes. So I so I had seen like Freddy Krueger set piece kills and nightmares <laughs> right. before I had seen the movies mm-hmm. and of course later i saw the movies and uh i have to say i have a lot of affection for them um i think the movies actually have a better uh consistency of quality than other horror movie franchises right like, like your like your jasons and your michael myers um and i think mm-hmm. part of that is remarkably even though I would say there are some bad entries in the Elm Street movies, when they make the movies, they do seem to feel like, okay, we're doing Elm Street, so we have to put our all into the nightmare sequences and the dream and the kills and the special effects. We have to make this look spiffy for fans and audiences. So even the bad entries, like I would consider freddy's dead the final nightmare the worst one even that one i can watch and be entertained by because they still put a lot of effort into the special effects and whatnot and you kind of weirdly see that same consistency throughout the series um which is weird when you see like other horror movie franchises get like cheaper looking as the sequels go by um so yeah i mean that those are my general thoughts on elm street what about you I think uh, Freddy was my my fave slasher as as a teen as well, um, specifically because of that uh, sort of consistency. Um, also, there were simply less movies, because <laughs> uh, I think there were six movies in like late nineties. You had New Nightmare, which was the seventh, mm-hmm. and then Freddy uh, versus Jason, and then uh, yeah. <laughs> and then the uh, remake with Jackie Earl Haley as Freddy, right, right, right. which yeah, that might actually be the worst one if we're counting like all the other all the other movies. That might be the worst Elm Street movie. I- I've not seen that nor Freddy's Dead. Freddy's uh, Dead uh, could honestly. Freddy's Dead could show up on Trashtober in the future. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, I'd be down for that. Um, but yeah, he was uh, he was my favorite because like it had he had that um, Freddy had has that uh, sort of Gremlins two energy, where because of the dream the scenario of dreams, you, could, you know, it's very anarchic. Anything can happen, and you know he's a he's a prankster as much as a slasher, you know. Uh, he's like an evil cartoon character yeah essentially um like jason will you know burst through your walls and and stab you in the throat but you know um uh, freddy will you know uh, appear in your DD fantasy as a wizard and Ah. say i don't believe in fairy tales kid (laughs) or or turn himself into a tv man you're welcome to prime time bitch yeah and uh 
so you know there was definitely like you say there was always um there was always a um there was always a like a, a set piece element to his kills made them made them very fun to watch and um you know his um the climax has always got very uh very big and apocalyptic uh, mm-hmm. kind of like uh, we recently watched clifford and <laughs> hilariously <laughs> enough Clifford's Larry the Scary Rex kind of almost felt like a Freddy climax. <laughs> yeah, you know where, uh, but you know what I mean, though, right? Like yeah. suddenly we're in this huge uh, sort of set piece, um, yeah. and um, yeah, yeah go, Charles Grown suddenly's got the glove on when he's at the controls <laughs> of the ride. <laughs> uh, yeah, so <laughs> you're about to go extinct, kid. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Dinosaur World, bitch. <laughs> uh, yeah, and you know he he had you know stupid little cheesy one-liners like an action hero. So uh, that was absolutely my shit as a kid. Yeah, and uh, Robert England never phones it in. Like he's <laughs> he's always keyed in to do Freddy, and he seems to always be happy to do Freddy. I mean, you know. Obviously, in history, you'll meet those actors who have that big, huge, iconic character they're associated with, and some love it, some hate it, some are in between about it. But England seems all in on a, you know, the Freddy thing. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Even when uh, they advertise, I even remember at one point he did a, a version of uh, Phantom of the Opera where he played the Phantom, and like I think the poster for that even was like, you know. For- he was, you know, first he was Freddy and now he's the Phantom. You know, <laughs> even though it's not an Elm Street movie, the poster is advertising, look, guys, it's the Freddy Krueger actor as <laughs> the Phantom. And like, he, he didn't seem to have any problems with that. And all, you know, he's happy to talk about it and do the voice and do the thing. So, you know, good on him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's um that's definitely another uh notch in his belt because you know there's we always say Kane Hodder with Jason but like I think Kane Hodder only joined in like the seventh entry or yeah something later like on that. Uh-huh. and uh yeah obviously Robert Englund was there from moment one like uh like Brad Dourif you know with Chucky and mm-hmm. he's an equally great character actor yeah and you know I think. I think of all the movies we could have covered to get into the Elm Street franchise, I think this is probably the best one, the be- the most ripe for our type of discussion because, you know, this was made because the first movie was such a hit when it was released in the early 80s. So, of course, New Line had to make a sequel because um, the original Nightmare on Elm Street was the first movie that New Line made and distributed themselves. Otherwise, they were previously an independent distributor of movies is the first oh, one they right, financed right. themselves. So new huh. line cinema uh, oftentimes had the moniker, the, the house that Freddie built. Um, right. So, um, so of course they made the sequel and this sequel uh, is, is very interesting uh, and has a lot to discuss and has been discussed. Um, I mean, where do you want to start with Luana with uh, in particular number two, Freddie's revenge? So yeah, um, Freddy's Revenge does not really pick up from Nancy's story in after the first one, right? Um, we hear there's... references to it, but we don't see a continuation. 
Exactly. Um, the main kid, Jesse, has moved in to Jess, uh, to Nancy's house. Mm-hmm. And we hear talk of, uh, the, I think Nancy went crazy after the boy next door got killed or something. The, yeah, the that the basically street. after the events of the first movie, she went crazy and she eventually died in an asylum. Um, oh which, they say she died yeah that she which you know in the third movie that retcons and that she's <laughs> alive and she's a you know psychologist um, right oh I, I must have missed that they said she died i think so i don't remember okay I, right, what about right. what about reviewer i am uh but uh, <laughs> yeah that was it i mean essentially they didn't get anybody from the original movie except for england back so it's like all right everyone's gone <laughs> and uh yeah and obviously uh you know the kid jesse starts getting nightmares and um about a, a crazy guy who wants him to go into the boiler and wants him to do bad stuff and wants him to give in to all that uh you know all the evil Freddy stuff so that mm. He can um, he can be reborn in the real world. Who can take possession of Jesse's body, and um, that is a fairly unique take, I suppose, for the um, for the franchise. Because Freddy's motivation in the first one was getting revenge on the children of Elm Street, on the you know for the parents that burned him alive in uh, in an act of vigilante justice. So. This is, you know, while there are some nods to the first movie, uh, it's mostly done away with. Even Freddy, who is returning, seems to have a different motivation. Mm -hmm. Um, Like his general concept of like being a child murderer, boiler room, that's the same. But he he wants something else, which is, uh, okay, uh, good enough. You know, there's... um, you don't want it to just be a rehash of the first one, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But um, Freddy's Revenge is kind of an odd duck out. And I um, don't know if I said this before, but um, considering that we come from a – we have a kaiju podcasting background, mm-hmm. I feel that um, Freddy's Revenge is the Godzilla raids again of the franchise. Okay. Where, like, kind of – yeah, okay, we've had a big success. You know, the previous one was a big success, and we'd like to continue that, but we don't quite know how to do that yet. We don't quite know what to focus on, what new routes to take, what will hit. So, um, and, and I think they really perfected that with the next one, Dream Warriors. Yeah. Um, But this one feels a bit more tentative uh, in that, we don't want it to be an exact rehash, but we also kind of don't want we don't really know what exactly um is is what hits. We know? don't know so, what the we don't quite know what the template is. Yeah, exactly. That's the perfect way to say it. And um so making it a poltergeist possession movie kind of uh is a different a different way to go. Mm-hmm. And a very loaded way to go because it is weirdly, and this is something that the movie ultimately became very um, notorious for, uh, weirdly uh, 
subtextually homosexual. <laughs> I mean, um, that's kind of the big thing about this movie is yeah. is, is, is 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 all of the gay content, gay subtext, or even some might say gay text of this movie. Because, <laughs> uh, of course, Jesse needs to mm, let this strange man inside him. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, he's constantly in, like, <laughs> being forced to do sweaty sit-ups with this frenemy at school by a by a highly sexually charged coach uh -huh. uh, and like um who then you know like you said it's barely subtext like the frenemy guy then goes like yeah he, he gets off on this because he goes to queer snm bars <laughs> <laughs> and it's like and you think of like, okay sure it's just um you know, tasteless 1985 joke. But then, no, we actually see him at a queer <laughs> SM bar. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and and uh, he gets he gets killed in the most hilariously homoerotic way. Like, he gets tied up in the locker room and he gets sort of towel spanked to death. Yeah. And then before then, like, he has all those uh, sports balls getting rammed at his face, if you remember. All the balls <laughs> oh, yeah. bouncing at his head, you know? Uh, before we get into, like, that, because I feel like that's the biggest thing we got to discuss, is something that you said earlier about, well, how do you figure making a sequel to Elm Street before we know how to make a Elm Street sequel? You know, the thing about the most iconic horror movies, or I'd say the horror movies that have lasted so long... I'm not bringing anything new to the table when I say this, that, you know, I think it's a duality to the most iconic horror movies that there is the surface level threat and then there's the existential dread that powers it. You know, there's right, always right. the what's the catch? What's the hook? Oh, the killer can do this. Oh, the killer can do that. But then subtextually, why do we fear such a thing? Um, right. And, you know, with the original Nightmare on Elm Street, of course, it's been said many times that Wes Craven got his inspiration from some teenagers who were having, who were being, who had horrible cases of insomnia, claimed that mm -hmm. uh, they didn't want to fall asleep less because they feared death and that there was uh, one or two teens who did, one or two of these teens who eventually did fall asleep and did die under mysterious circumstances. Oh, so, really? Yes. Um, so, you know, the original Nightmare on Elm Street obviously has, you know, the catch, which is like, oh, no, a killer who can get you when you fall asleep. Oh, no, isn't that exciting? But watching the movie, and, you know, Craven has also discussed this, you know, the existential dread under that is the youth of then modern America of the 80s, fearful for their lives and being failed by their adults, being failed by either the vigilant, the consequences of the actions of the adults. And now that this horror is upon them, the adults unwilling to help or listen to them, to, the, right, right, right. to them. Um, so that's your existential. And, you know, of course, you can apply this to Halloween and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Exorcist, you know, do it for fun. But that's, I think, what's motivating the original Elm Street. And I'll say that in that trying to want to rehash but don't want to quite rehash, 
having the sequel still be about the the fears of youth and that adults can't or won't try to understand your fears you know the fear mm-hmm. of one's burgeoning sexuality i think it's like a good it feels like a natural through line you know uh, if you want to explore that without repeating the first movie you know yeah yeah absolutely um although i i feel that like considering that like what uh <laughs> what is the like freddy is the the gayness right uh, <laughs> it it weirdly becomes a conservative movie because it's you're trying to you know slay the gay away you know? <laughs> it it look it's a it the the the, the gay content is messy in this one. Like the kills are messy, <laughs> but you know the. And look, it. What's funny is that, like, so it's so, it just seems so obvious, especially to modern audiences now, about how much Freddy Krueger possessing Jesse is a metaphor for dealing with homosexuality. But it's funny and interesting. Um, so, like, as part of my research for this episode, I watched two documentaries. I watched Never Sleep Again, which was which is the four-hour documentary that charts the behind-the-scenes of every Elm Street movie up to Freddy vs. Jason. Talks to most of the directors and filmmakers and actors and special effects people. So you get some pretty extensive behind-the-scenes stuff on each entry up to versus Jason. And I also watch Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, a documentary from a few years ago that that focuses on the career and life of mark Patton, the actor who plays jesse in this movie and uh you know where he came from and Mm -hmm. how he eventually came out of the closet and how elm street affected his life and it's so funny that People like Jack Shoulder, the director, and uh-huh. other various people in production will say, we had no idea this was this was gay. We had no idea that this <laughs> movie would be taken this way. But then people like Mark Patton and like it seemed like most of the cast, like, oh yeah, we, we got we we got what's <laughs> going on here. We understood it. And then uh Dave, let me find his name again. David uh David Chaskin, who wrote freddy's nightmare that's sort of interesting because so in never sleep again he says oh yes uh i took inspiration from sort of the sort of the uh hiv epidemic the rise in uh lgbtq protests and whatnot and then a few years later when scream queen comes out one of mark Patton's big kind of uh one of his big things in his life is that he is frust he was frustrated by the fact that chaskin for the longest time seemed to deny that he had intentionally written any gay content into the movie and but per Patton's point of view it seemed that when the movie started to get a cult following and recognize 
positively for its gay content, then Chaskin was more ready to say, hey, yeah, you know, I was talking about gay. And that uh, Patton especially, I think, had an issue with that Chaskin would sometimes say, oh, I didn't write it as gay, but, you know, the way that Mark portrayed it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And and then, uh, you know, in the in Scream Queen, he does eventually have a meeting with Chaskin and they talk it out and they actually, you know, ended on good terms. And, oh, that's nice. And uh, Patton is actually manages to move on and even go like, I thought Chaskin was, you know, this huge devil in my life, kind of the source of all my fears and insecurity. And turns out it wasn't. I just put him in that position for oh, wow. other things in my life and whatnot. So it ends on a good note and, oh, and nice. him, him able to kind of put the final stamp on Elm streets and uh, embrace, you know, his past and everything. But it is so interesting that again, it seemed like the most straightest of straight people, seemingly straight people involved in this movie and no clue what was going on, but uh, anyone who was either LGBTQ themselves or just had a little bit of emotional intelligence seemed to know what was going on with this movie. Right, right, right. Like even Robert <laughs> England, when every time he's talked about this movie, he refers to Freddy Krueger in this movie as a seducer, that he is seducing Jesse right, 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 in this right. movie. Uh -huh. So like even he knows what's up with all this going on. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, uh, it, you know, honestly, that, that's uh, nice. That, um, <laughs> that, because there's a lot of that in pop culture where, like, movies weren't necessarily written to have queer subjects or texts, but, like, fans latch onto it. And there's always these discussions about, you know, oh, so obvious, you know, it's, it's this is obviously a queer movie, even though it doesn't have any queer text. And what are you talking about? And, you know, people tend to uh, kind of see or project stuff into it. But this, this is actually a very nice um, sort of instance of it where, you know, we had these, these opposing viewpoints, like, I didn't mean it. <laughs> like, well, you know, a lot of people read that into it. And like, well, okay, that's, that's cool. Then, you know, <laughs> um, but um, I don't know. I mean, I could def, I, of course, I, I, I went into it knowing its reputation. I, I'd already seen it as a teen. Uh, I, I don't know that I, that I picked up on it as a teen though. Um, it was years later that I would, you know, when I started to visit movie forums and stuff that I would start seeing it be, referred to as the gay one yeah, yeah, yeah uh and you know re-watching it for the podcast it was you know it was very obvious it was like some sports uh, balls getting rammed at your face uh-huh <laughs> <laughs> i i felt as if my wrists were being <laughs> restrained by some jump ropes and yeah. my my pants torn off oh, no. yeah and, and our tushies getting whipped by towels <laughs> our bare tushies um i loved uh the um I, I love that one guy trying to offer to help freddy hey buddy you need help help yourself walker <laughs> uh, I, I i i gotta say something as a bit of a negative for this movie and this is actually away from the from the uh gay content so uh so like you know there are some 
Elm Street heads, I'll say Fred heads. I think they, I, I think uh-huh. Fred head is the actual name for like a diehard okay, Elm okay. Street fan. Uh, but there are some who, you know, aside from the gay stuff, don't like the movie because it's not a nightmare movie necessarily. As you said, it's a possession movie. This is right, Freddy right. killing people by, you know, going through the body of Jesse and killing people in real life. And I gotta say, I don't care. I It really doesn't matter to me. I mean, maybe... I mean, maybe if I had been a fan following the movies that they as they come out, maybe I would have had a problem. But, you know, the by the time I came to the series, it had already wrapped up with Freddy's <laughs> yeah, dead. Right. So I didn't care whether he possessed people or it was through <laughs> dreams or whatever. But I got to say, I kind of understand maybe keeping Freddy in dreams because there's so there's that scene you were talking about. Kind of the set, the the one of the big set pieces is when he, you know, starts killing all the teens at the pool party. Yeah, right, right. And usually people will point that as like a highlight of like, oh yeah, this is a rare moment where you get to just see Freddy just really be like a slasher villain, just slashing through a bunch of teenagers. <laughs> I gotta say though, there are some shots of Robert England just running around in the costume and he's like knocking over like tables of with mar- with beers and margaritas and hot dogs and i'm like this is just silly looking it just looks like freddy krueger's a potty party pooper <laughs> like he's the guy who wasn't invited and, and he oh, crashes like ah don't invite me will ya <laughs> He's, he looks like he's going on a George Costanza rampage. Exactly. That was supposed to be the summer of Fred. <laughs> um, so, Pizza yeah. strength, George. Yeah, because again, again, hey, look, I'm a short king. And hey, Freddy is kind of a short king too. Robert England's not the <laughs> tallest guy. Freddy's not really that tall compared to like Michael or Jason or Leatherface. Mm-hmm. So it, and, and, and the teenagers, <laughs> as points out, are, all look like they're in their 30s. So <laughs> some of them are, are at six feet tall. <laughs> um, like Robert Russler's character, when he gets killed in his bedroom, uh, and he's like up against the door frame, he's like, no, no, Fred, get away from me. No, he's like, he's nearing six feet as well. So he's got like a good foot over <laughs> England, so it looks like he could just put Freddy in a headlock and like be okay. <laughs> God, I mean, that was this. Yeah, now that you mentioned, it, I hadn't brought it up yet, but this movie is an absolute classic in terms of like, you know, the last century had so many quote unquote high school movies where like all the students looked about 35. <laughs> like there there's this one and uh Christine is another classic oh, in the yeah, genre. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they all look like these Bruce Springsteen as blue collar <laughs> factory worker. <laughs> um We were take we burned him down in the door in the films <laughs> of Elm Street. Burn him alive in the furnace. I, I actually think that yeah. Freddie Freddy kind of plays upon suburban fears and anxieties to the point uh-huh. that you could probably do a pretty good, like, Springsteen montage set. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, sad Springsteen song, Dilapidated Houses of Elm Street. I love it. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I seeing him kill in the real world, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I kind of... Just... 
I kind of yeah. see why they keep him in Dreamland now. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was actually might have thought the same thing at some point, when, especially when he starts, you know, throwing the punch bowl. So yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sure, buddy. Yeah. I mean, he's just party Freddy at that point. Like, he would just, like, I feel like he would just, that would be a dream sequence where he has, like, a Hawaiian lay and a big fun Hawaiian <laughs> shirt on and, like, <laughs> and all that. Yeah, absolutely. And he'd send some, like, party on, bitch, or something. Yeah. And mind you, he kills people in real life. And it's so funny at, at the very end, when all when the main character, when all the friends are on the bus, and the one friend pops up and be like, "Hey, that was a great pool party," and then <laughs> and then she's like, ah, "Don't mention it," as though it's like <laughs> some high school drama happened. No, your friends were killed at that thing. They killed five people. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I also love that for like the um the gay subtext being like unwitting. Like mm-hmm. Jesse does have like a Kate Bush poster <laughs> in his he's got <laughs> Limal, the German the German singer of the never ending story, like super Limal, gender yeah. bending. Uh, yeah, hey. So again, uh, so, some people knew okay. and some people didn't. <laughs> I guess the set designers knew. Yeah, yeah. Um no, but uh, I also want to say that, like, uh, with like the girlfriend, um, I was actually taken aback when she first showed up. Uh, Lisa, I think her name is. But yeah, I think it's Lisa. Yeah, and uh, I was like, "Wait, what the fuck? A young Meryl Streep is in this movie?" <laughs> and I was like, "No, wait, wait, this is not not." And I was like, "No, okay," because like, I mean, the first one obviously has you know a pre-famed Johnny Depp, and I was like. No, no. I mean, Meryl Streep was big by this point. Yeah, right? yeah. It, it is. It is in fact not Meryl Streep, but Lisa really looks. Yeah, like Meryl Streep. They they mentioned that in the Never Sleep Again documentary, where I think they were talking about like, yeah, Kim Myers. Yeah, she was great. She was wonderful, and it didn't hurt that she looked like Meryl Streep. And yeah, yeah. so there you go. She looks like Meryl Streep. Good for her, I guess. <laughs> Seems like a nice lady. Seems like a nice enough lady that I will say, ah, I don't think the acting in this movie is the best. <laughs> I I think even, <laughs> I, I look, and again, I am very sympathetic to Mark Patton and uh, his struggles he had in Hollywood. And he actually had a, if you watch the documentary, he actually had a really like pretty pr- young, promising career pre-Elm Street. Um, oh really yeah um and but um yeah i am what re-watching this movie not that like horror slashers ever have the best acting but it's like i can at least remember the first movie with heather langenkamp and depp and everyone's like okay i i buy you know you know also those teens look a little older than you think but i also <laughs> buy their acting and this one it's a little bit on the weak side i'll unfortunately say i mean england is still being good and creepy but everyone else is a little uh, they're either being a little too undercooked or it's a little bit on the cheesy side that's (laughs) not quite on the fun cheesy side i'll say 
had to laugh at the dad being so fucking aggressive about the thermostat. <laughs> oh yeah, Clue Gulliger as like the most like dad of dads. <laughs> and this is um I recently saw Return of the Living Dead for the first time. With Clue Gulliger. Uh, yeah, exactly. So I was like, oh fuck, that's the that's the the warehouse owner man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess you really picked up on the clues. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also like how dumb he is. Like how, he, you know, he has that kind of stereotypical dad thing of like, oh, I don't believe you, you young, dumb teenager. So like when the fucking pear bird explodes, he's like, well, well what'd you do, Jesse? Cherry bomb? Huh? Firecracker? Is that what you did? It's like, no, no. <laughs> Your bird randomly exploded after he killed the other bird. What the fuck do you mean? <laughs> How did he get a firecracker in there? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's um, I mean, I mean, there's many ways I think you can take the gay subtext, and I mean, huh? I'll say that like it does seem now, and from the documentary that it has found its cult audiences, like audiences who really have latched on to the movie and really enjoying. Uh, the gay t- content of the movie, enjoying the campiness of the movie. Um, and you know what? I don't even, you know, the movie ends with, you know, I mean, here's how strong the gay content is that like, you know, at the end, Freddie is quote unquote defeated by the hetero love of Lisa yeah. and Jesse. And like, you don't buy the romance at all. It is not a fiery, passionate hetero romance in this movie. Like, you get the feeling that Jesse and Lisa could be good friends. They seem like good friends, but, like, yeah, yeah. the kissing and the whatnot, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> nah. Um, it, but, you know, the and, uh, you know, it's messy. And um, that's the thing, I mean, with horror and with franchise movies, unfortunately, I think the higher up the studio chain you get, the messier the movie gets, and maybe the less uniform its message can be. Um, but in a way, like maybe the cults, the people who have made it a cult classic, maybe that is the way to go. Like, yeah, is the message perfect? No, but it's probably, and, and you know, I speak as someone who is not LGBTQ, um, but you know, those they seem to have latched on to something that is so, um, something that is so um big and obvious in a big franchise and that does not seem to also be ashamed of having such content yeah uh, in in itself um Mm -hmm. yeah i mean those are you know those are my like untidy thoughts on that what about you Uh, yeah i i think so as well because like the there's obviously like a lot of mixed signals going on with different because you know a movie is a big collaborative team effort and if not everyone is on the same page and like we joked just now about like oh my god it looks like the set designers were in on it but like what if they were <laughs> you know what what if uh you know if if the big uh, the big kahunas at the at the top the suits weren't maybe the director and the, the writer weren't but like how about you know if a lot of the below the line crew were and that's how you get maybe a slightly you know, a confused movie. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't ring true. Like, you know, the Jesse's, you know, sweaty um sort of turmoil and like the the the, the 
feeling that nobody understands him. And, you know, I, I think that even with the sort of uh, heterosexual love uh, triumphant uh, ending, I think there's enough real feeling stuff there that uh, I can, you know, I, I can understand that for some kids saw this might have been, um, yeah, it might have been some foreign. Yeah. And, you know, again, like all the way up until the ending, there there can be that interpretation like, you know, yes jesse and lisa you know get together in the end but then you have that final last scare where it seems like the bus nightmare that is shown at the beginning seems to be happening at the end to our main characters and how do you interpret that do you interpret that as yeah, you, you know the film, you, how do you, you can't become heterosexual exactly yeah just... do you interpret that as like oh we we gave you the traditional straight couple one, but you know because of that, Freddie still wins because Jesse's sexuality is unresolved. Or do you take that as like standard studio filmmaker notes of like we just want to get one last scare? I mean, yeah, yeah. you know how <laughs> yeah. do you how do you take that exactly? Exactly, and and I mean I think textually it's it, it is the latter. <laughs> you know mm -hmm. you want that big yeah yeah scare. yeah. It doesn't always make doesn't always make sense but it does kind of coincide with you know okay if you have this obviously you know closeted young man and you have him end up with the girl and everything's fine and dandy maybe everything is not quite so fine and dandy as one you know as one might think and that sort of um serendipitously the um uh <laughs> the studio mandated final scare becomes a thematic however unintentional uh sort of coda to the movie um so yeah <laughs> it it kind of end up it kind of ends up working despite itself yeah well i think speaking of codas i think we should put a coda on this episode so let's go ahead and get into our wrap-ups let's go ahead and get into most trashy least trashy where we talk about our most favorite least favorite things about the movie in question so let's kick it off with with most trashy or least favorite thing about the movie. Uh, so, Luana, go ahead, kick it off. What, for you, was the most trashy, least favorite thing about this film? Um, let's see. Um, I suppose... I think... Um, I'm going to go with, like, sort of the heterosexual love triumphant type of thing. Um... Because, you know, that's that's the one thing that might, you know, it requires a very specific reading of the text's coda that we just discussed uh, to not be quite bigoted, you know, to not give the movie a conservative message. And while I do think that it's, you know, it it sort of coincidentally comes you know ends up being a nice you know you can't pray the gateway movie the fact that it's unintentional is kind of you know that we know it to be unintentional is makes it kind of uh, the iffy you know morally so how about you travis i think most trashy for me i'll circle back to it is the acting um having watched those two documentaries i'll say the actors again do seem like pleasant people seem like they had a nice time working on the movie and they seemed again more in tune than maybe some of the filmmakers were to the 
to the gay content of the movie. I don't know. Maybe they were a little too green to acting or, or whatever. It, it just doesn't, it's just not quite there for me to uh, buy into the character's play to the, to the fact that like, I think when I'm exploring and, and discussing the gay message of the movie, it, it is subtextual than character action or character motivation that the actors are bringing um so yeah it's it's that the acting um for me that's uh most trashy for me but uh let's go ahead and move on to better things least trashy our most favorite thing about the movie so luana for you what was the most favorite least trashy thing about this film um i think there was some really nifty effects work in this movie um i liked the sort of werewolf transformation into freddy in um in the in the guy's room that was really cool uh, yeah absolutely and i also really liked the um sort of freddy disintegration at the end that was that was really cool too in in fact <laughs> that's probably better looking than the way he just kind of poofs into some shitty effects <laughs> in the first movie <laughs> like he he's kind of the sp- he spoo- it's like, I, yeah i'm not afraid of you anymore and then he just <laughs> <poofs into> sparkles <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, you know, <laughs> I feel like his death in this one probably deserved a movie of the caliber of the first one <laughs> rather than the sparkles he disintegrates into. Um, but yeah, so so the effects work was really, um, really quite something. How about you, Travis? Yeah, I'll say it again and I'll re- echo what you said. My favorite thing is the effects like Gillick. If they knew what they needed to focus on it was making sure those kills and those special effects still looked entertaining for audiences and maybe maybe it was the focus on that that the that the more straight-minded filmmakers didn't see all the gay content that was actually in the movie but uh yeah i mean like i said you usually get some memorable scenes in these elm street movies even if they end up being not quite to your taste so yeah i'll i'll say uh you know bravo to the special effects once again to elm street but uh, i'm glad we're on the same page (laughs) well let's see where we're on the same page as this so let's go ahead get to the final question really the ultimate question of the podcast so luana give us your final thoughts by answering the question is a nightmare on elm street 2 freddy's revenge a trash movie i'm going to declare it not trash um i thought it was fun i had a good time um it it's confused uh messaging makes it interesting and um yeah and it's uh it, it, it's it's just all around weird enough that i had i simply had a good time watching it how about you travis I'm going to also say that this is not trash. Um, I don't know. I don't have like rankings for the Elm Street movies, but I would put this in like a mid tier. I think this is, uh, you know, entertaining enough Elm Street content to watch. And, you know, I think it's fantastic that, you know, however you deal with, you know, however you interpret the messaging of this movie, you know, the fact that it's like, you know, I think nowadays, you know, luckily now that LGBTQ content is becoming more prominent in modern cinema. So you start having movies that are horror movies that are more directly 
talking about the those type of issues but it's i don't know it was kind of it was it's kind of a nice thing that like freddy's revenge on the outside looks like a regular freddy movie it has the presentation of a come to the theater with your popcorn and your soda and watch freddy cut up some teenagers and then you get surprised by all this stuff you get surprised by a three-minute scene of Mark Patton dancing around his room, you know, with his sunglasses on, butt bumping his his clothes drawer with, with the sparkly vest. Yeah, um, doing that. Ooh, doing that. Uh, pelvic dance with the pop gun there. You know, that's the that's the move right there. Um, but uh, yeah, I you know I think, however messy that messaging may be, I think it's the fact that it's still discussed to this day that it involves that it is a part of such a popular movie character that this has not been erased um that it's something and i think it's notable for that for existence you know that like they obviously only tried to reboot the series once but i feel that um you know rather than just do the old stuff again like you know obviously a reboot wants to capture the magic of the old series but new um rather than try and do the original or dream warriors again why not do freddy's like make it about mike make it a possession movie from the start and rather than homosexuality make it toxic masculinity oh okay i could see like, that yeah but that you know Freddy is the guy he doesn't want to become because Freddy gives in to his base urges. And, like, you know, Freddy is obviously the worst thing a dude can be, you know? Yeah. He's a, um, and yeah. saying bitch a uh, lot. He says bitch a lot. <laughs> and um, if, you know, and, and, and make, make Jesse like a real quarterback, you know, jock who's constantly pushed to, you know, be the alpha Chad. <laughs> and, <laughs> You know, and if that is rather than homosexuality, make it about trying to resist the toxic masculinity and that Freddie is trying to goad him into it. I think yeah. that could be a could be a a, a a more original take. I would be totally down with that take. And, you know, I think the fact that it hasn't been retconned out and that it is still a a piece of the it is a piece of fabric in the long-running quilt of freddy Krueger now that i think is is good and i think uh i'm glad it remains a classic to some fans and you know i think for, for any reasons uh i'll always welcome that nightmare you know that's a nightmare i will i will gladly dream again <laughs> well I, I had a good time yeah, me too. Uh, it was a nice trip to Elm Street, but uh, we have another destination we have to go to as Trashtober 2, Trash of the Titans, continues. Because we'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode, with a brand new horror movie. And uh, Luana. Travis. So, one of the most recent failures of movie studios, uh, aside from all the other failures they seem to be doing <laughs> these days constantly, but one of the recent big <laughs> kind of pies in the face is uh, when Universal tried to start the Dark Universe, their cinematic universe, where they wanted to reintroduce their classic monsters for modern audiences. 
they did the Tom Cruise mommy movie. No one liked it. And so goodbye, Dark Universe. We will never see see that again. Goodbye, poof. But uh, funny enough, as forgotten as the Dark Universe soon will be, there was another forgotten attempt at reviving the classic monsters that uh, I think deserves discussion. Are you talking about Dracula Untold? <laughs> Oh God, no! Oh, <laughs> unless that be, unless that's a listener's choice, I don't think we're doing Dracula Untold ever. No, no, let's go even earlier than that to the year 2010 and the retelling, the remake of Universal's The Wolfman. And now there's a story about denying your inner toxic masculinity, <laughs> <laughs> hairy masculinity, in fact. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. And uh, we'll go, yeah. So uh, we'll continue on Trashtober Two with that remake of The Wolfman, uh, starring Benicio del Toro. That'll be in two weeks. In the meanwhile, you can follow this show on social media at trash movie pod on twitter email the show at trash at gmail.com and if you're feeling especially nice and generous you can give this show a five-star rating and review on spotify and apple podcast in two weeks will be our continuation of trash tober with the wolfman but until then until next time the defense rest see ya see ya